Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Christina Dronin. Christina is the Executive Director of Finally Family Homes, an organization that supports young people aging out of foster care in Valencia, California. Well, hello, Christina. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for sharing about yourself and your organization. I'm very interested in hearing more about Finally Family Homes. To get started, why don't we begin, if you could please share some background about yourself and your own personal journey that brought you to working with young people in foster care. Yeah, so I'm from, I always say I'm from all over because my dad was in the Air Force. So we moved every two to four years. And so I've lived all over the U.S. and moved to California as a young adult myself and actually have lived here in the North Los Angeles area for, oh goodness, I should have done my math first, 16-ish years. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah, and I got married, moved here with my husband, and we have three kids who are 14, 11, and 4. And yeah, I'm the author of uh, Gentle Parenting Bible Studies. I've always had a passion for kind of defending children or helping encourage others to care for children in helpful and meaningful ways that make an impact. And then now I am the Executive Director of Finally Family Homes, which works with transition age youth. My degree is in Spanish and computer science. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> logical yeah. jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. I changed majors a lot in college. Yeah, so the Spanish is handy in Southern California, especially. Honestly, I heard about it through my church. I was going to church in Los Angeles, and they were like, how can we help some of the people who are struggling most in our community in the L.A. area? And we did something for the homeless and... Everybody knows about the homeless because they're everywhere. You can see them. There's nobody who doesn't know about the struggles of homelessness in L.A. Then the next year, they said, well, we're going to focus on foster care because we have the largest foster care system in the nation. And I heard even recently the largest in the world is the L.A. County foster care system. I think there's about 33,000 at any given time kids in foster care here. That one I didn't know about, and I was like, I just wasn't super familiar, and so there was a lot of education, a lot of talking about ways to get involved, and I found myself torn, like, oh, I really care about the homelessness issue, and I care a lot about foster youth, and I don't know where I really want to put my energy, and then I found out that kids age out of foster care and become homeless, and at a much higher rate than I imagined once I got into it, but yeah, it's an entire subpopulation of homelessness here of kids who age out, I think that we estimate about a thousand kids transition age youth 16 to 24 sleep on the streets of Los Angeles. That's unsheltered, just sleeping on the streets on any given night. How many was that again? 1,000 kids from foster care. Wow. Wow. 16 to 24 are sleeping on the streets of LA. So that doesn't even count the kids who are younger than that. That's the 16 to 24 crowd. And that's unsheltered. That's not in a homeless shelter or in a car that is on the street. And so when I found out about that, I was like, this is crazy. And I just really felt moved. And I think hearing so much about the kids who are aging out, and I don't know if you've seen those videos and stuff going around, newscasts of kids who are like, I'm 17 years old, 
I really want a family before it's too late. And I was like, no, that's just not right. Like it shouldn't be too late. And that's part of why, you know, our tagline is never too old for a family. I don't think you age out of the need for a family. And so I did start volunteering first, but I just felt like what I was seeing out there was so, so much institutional support and things that were, I noticed the kids and the teenagers were not, they were very standoffish and they knew that everybody around them was hired. And even in foster homes, so many kids are keenly aware that it's the paycheck for some foster parents. And so I just thought, I wonder if we could connect with kids more if we really focused on the relationship and not just, here's food, here's clothes. And so I actually, with my church, went to Kyrgyzstan, of all places, former communist third world country, where they were caring for kids who were aging out of orphanages. And the kids I met there were actually way more optimistic, way more hopeful, working on their education, just a night and day difference. And I was like, I knew it. I knew that's what we need over here in LA. We need we need to have more connection and caring. And that's when I started finding family homes. I felt like nothing I saw around me was really focused on interpersonal relationships and as well, not as focused on upward mobility financially. Everything was kind of helping people barely get by. So that's what caused me to start it. So you started the organization. I did. Yep. I'm the founder. And when was that? 2017. September, actually. So just about exactly (laughs) five years ago. Now, you had mentioned that you started out by volunteering. A lot of people wonder, how in the world can I help these young people if I'm not working at one of these organizations? So I'm curious, what kind of volunteering did you do? I volunteered sometimes doing stuff, you know, packing up duffel bags for kids so that way they could have some dignity when they get removed from a home and not have to put their things in a garbage bag. I worked with another organization that was going into a kind of uh, group home for young ladies who were pregnant and just showed up there to kind of hang out with them and talk to them. And, and then, yeah, those were the main ways that I started getting involved. For people who are thinking about starting an organization, working with these young people aging out of care, would you recommend doing some volunteering before making that leap? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I'm just, you know, I like to get that confirmation. (laughs) Yeah. And there's so many different ways to volunteer. Just need to look around in your area and see what's there. Yeah, yeah. And I've found sometimes it's hard to find the organizations. Google doesn't always show you exactly what's around you. So you do have to do a bit of work. I've been in our area doing this for a while now, and I only just came across another nonprofit I never knew existed serving that same population. And it turns out they serve the kids in a different area of LA, but they're like located in our same city. But yeah, I think sometimes you have to do some real searching and your local child welfare office also will take donations and things like that. And I think that's something that I honestly didn't know until I was working as a nonprofit and we give to help the social workers support their kids as well. You can always call up your local child welfare office and say, hey, how can I support you? How can I make sure these kids feel cared about and seen? It takes a little bit of research. I actually went around and interviewed other organizations. I would highly recommend that before starting your organization. I went to other transition age youth housing places, other nonprofits serving foster youth, and talked to them about their work and the challenges and any recommendations. And I strongly recommend that as well if you're going to start an organization. I'm going to take the opportunity to share that Aging Out Institute actually does have a database of programs 
So for anybody who is looking for a program near them, you can just go to agingoutinstitute.org and click on the database link in the menu and then select the database. There are several resources under that, but click the database link again. And then you'll be able to search for organizations in your area. So for example, you click on, I'm looking for housing programs in Kentucky, right? And then if we have any that have been added to the database, they will come up. So it's not exhaustive. We're always looking for new organizations to add to it, but it's pretty decent. So I would recommend folks try there first. Absolutely. Yeah. Because there really isn't any other that I know of. It's like I said, calling around, Googling, asking, there's no real centralized database besides Aging Out Institute for especially that I agree. There are some maybe state level databases or collections of links or regional, but not that many that really encompass the entire United States. Although I was just at a conference and I met two other people that are trying to start that kind of database. So we said, let's connect because why have three different databases when we can work together oh, and have one? So, yes. yeah. <laughs> so we're going to move forward with that soon, I'm sure. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think collaboration is the key, right? Oh, yes. I totally agree that that is necessary. So wonderful. So you started Finally Family Homes in 2017. So let's talk about that. What is your program all about? And you've got homes in the name, so I assume it has something to do with transitional living. So why don't I let you take off and explain your program and what the young people experience there, and and then we'll go from there. Like I said, there's two core things that I really felt like are important and most helpful to kids who are aging out of foster care. And I thought that really making that community connection and having a sense of being connected somewhere and people that you could call on like family if you don't have a family to call on. And then having some stability and upward mobility, being able to get out of the systems and off of government support and into some, you know, just being able to pursue bigger things in a long-term stable life. Because of Los Angeles having an affordable housing crisis, there's just not enough affordable housing here, period. And The kids who do get into affordable housing, they just end up barely getting by. They don't move out, honestly, sometimes for decades. We wanted to give young adults the opportunity to build to own their own tiny homes on wheels. And so we offer the opportunity to learn the construction skills, to invest a little bit financially because we want them to truly have that sense of ownership. And then when it's done, they have a financial safety net and some home stability and a sense of accomplishment that they're living in. That is a big financial thing to do. (laughs) I mean, it's significantly cheaper than affordable housing here. Sadly, LA affordable housing, the cost to build runs from, I think, $500,000 all the way up to $700,000 for one unit. One tiny home unit? No, no, that's for a condo size, like a one room condo. Okay. In a, in a affordable <laughs> house. Not for a whole building, for one unit inside wow. of a building is five hundred to seven hundred thousand wow. dollars. You know, a lot of them are for profit builders. I understand that the government needs to incentivize people to build. The money stays with the builder. The money stays with the big corporations and it doesn't go, you know, the youth never come out any better from it. They just barely get by. And so with the tiny homes on wheels, honestly, with inflation, it's gone up. I think we're estimating around 30 to $35,000 per unit to build. 
and they will be worth about 70000 each when they're done. So that gives a whole lot of equity and stability to the young adults, and they're able to take it with them. The reason they're on wheels is land is the big thing here in California that's most expensive. And so you can park legally in LA City backyards and be a guest house. And it's totally zoning approved and all that stuff. And so that's the idea is that we'll be able to let them live in areas where they wouldn't otherwise. We heard a story of a young man who got into affordable housing at 18 after aging out of a group home. And it was in Compton, which is kind of notorious for good reason, full of gangs. And he started getting jumped by gangs every day. And we're like, how is this helping a kid move up in the world? So a lot of the affordable housing units in L.A. are also just not in great neighborhoods where they're not surrounded by a community that's going to help them move up and out. And so that's the other thing that we really like about the Tiny Homes on Wheels is it allows the kids to park in areas that they may would maybe never be able to rent an apartment in. And then if they need to leave, if they move, they can take the tiny house with them. They have a little bit of it's a stability and instability. And as I was doing my research, I actually came across two different tiny home builders, like professional builders who are themselves former foster youth. Really? Yeah. Yeah. One of them said, I feel like this is the perfect fit for me as a former foster youth because there's a comfort and I can relate to this as someone who moved around as a kid myself. There's a comfort with the instability. There's a discomfort sometimes when you've been staying in one place too long because it's just not familiar. And so this allows that combination of stability and instability in a way that where you don't lose everything that you have if you just get up and take off. You know, you can take your things with you. Well, let me ask this. The partner that you talked to or partners who were former foster youth, the builders, how did you find that out? Were you just calling around and explained your mission and they said, hey, I aged out of foster care. And so it was just a coincidence or I'm really curious. Oh, they're not our partners. I wish. I wish they were. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I came across them in my research. Yeah. So one is in Oregon and the other is in Colorado and we're in California. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. So you were just doing your benchmarking yeah. with other organizations. Yeah. And I was, yeah. And making sure this was the right idea for this population. And that just really encouraged me that like, there's not that many tiny home builders in the U.S., maybe less than a hundred. And for two of them to be former foster youth and one of them to actually both have talked about one supports a nonprofit in Colorado, but I just, it stood out to me as like a confirmation that this was the right direction. Gotcha. No, I agree. I think that's wonderful affirmation of your mission. So anyone listening who's in Oregon or Colorado, maybe there's an opportunity there to work with those builders. Can you shout out their names? Do you have that on hand? I don't have it handy. (laughs) That's okay. Maybe we can add them to the resources links on the site. So if you could send those to me, I'll add them as links. Now, you said that the young people learn some construction skills, so they actually help build. Correct. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that stood out when I was researching Tiny Homes on Wheels is how many of the builders said just sitting in their home is an encouragement to them, seeing like, oh, hey, I helped put that wall up, or hey, I chose that tile and laid it down. There's a sense of ownership and accomplishment that I think it's really good for helping build self-esteem and also just being able to maintain the tiny house and fix anything that breaks. And then of course, finally, we actually have a huge shortage of construction workers in the nation and a ton of construction in our own local community. I think I read somewhere we're short like 300,000 construction workers in the U.S. right now. So so yeah, so it's to build them up literally in, in many ways and help them 
even if they don't go on to do construction, just having that sure. sense of accomplishment. Yeah, it's skills that you could probably continue to use throughout your life. Yes. In, you know, in one way or another, maintaining a home, you fall back on some of the things you learn, I'm sure. So you do have a construction company partner locally? So we have on our board of directors, someone who built his own tiny house and lives in it now. Okay. So he's been our main guide. And then, yeah, we are looking to subcontract with construction workers. We were partnering with Habitat for Humanity. We had been talking with them, but they actually have had like a huge growth in their building and not enough workers. We were hoping to have them be the construction lead because it's such a good overlap, right? It's helping people learn how to use tools and not shoot a nail through their hand. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And it's about ownership and all those things. So there's some really good overlap and they're still partnering with us and giving us guidance and helping us connect to the greater community. So we're just starting our first tiny house now. It took us this long to get the money, to get the space to build and all that stuff. So just to be clear on that. Oh, no, that's fantastic. So, okay. So you have like, you have the plans for a tiny home Mm -hmm. and you have space to build it, like a centralized location where you build it. Yes, correct. Okay. So you need a warehouse or, I mean, that might be a little big, but you know, some very large space to do that. Yeah. Well, our first one is outside. (laughs) Oh, there you go. It's okay, California. we're outside. <laughs> it's big open space. It's on somebody's ranch. And I think we just have to get that like proof of concept out for people. We're also looking at renting some spaces that have some indoor room to build because for the bigger picture and long term, that's a better, it's going to be a better setup. But we happen to have someone who has a ranch who's going to let us build there. And then we have like an indoor storage shed for all of our stuff and access to bathrooms, electricity, all that stuff. It's just that the actual build site is going to be outside. Okay. And do you get donations of the materials needed or are you purchasing or a mix? We're doing a mix. Yeah. So fortunately with all the construction around here, there's always leftover items that maybe would be too small for a typical house, but a tiny house, you know, it would be great for us. We have to be selective about our in-kind donations because we don't have a warehouse to store everything that that somebody might drop off. But yeah, for the foundation and, and the, which is your trailer, and then the the walls and stuff like that, the framing, we are, we're buying all new. We're actually going with steel, steel framing. So a specialized steel framing company. Wow. That's solid. Yeah. It's solid. It's lightweight. We want to make sure that these are safe and secure first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And you said that one of the approaches would be to put these homes behind other homes. Correct. Mm-hmm. How did you find your first, or are you still looking for your first volunteer, if you will, (laughs) to put the home behind their backyard? Yeah. So there's a cool organization up in Washington. Uh, I think they're called Block Homes. It's a slightly different model. They're just emergency housing for the homeless. They build a house, a tiny house, but it's not on wheels, but it's something they can take apart and remove. And they've found people who will let them build for free. So we're kind of you know, looking to them for guidance and to looking to follow their model. But the honest truth is just talking about what we're doing. I've had several people say, I'll do it. I'll have somebody park in my backyard. (laughs) I have plenty of room. So just talking about our work and the young adults. And I think, you know, there's just a lot of awareness that needs to be built up about kids aging out. Because I feel like so many people have that same experience of like, oh, I had no idea. And they're so moved. So just talking about it, we've had four or five people who are very interested in having and being supportive in that way. And I think it's something that people are comfortable with when I talk to them. You know, there's, it's one thing to have a young adult living in your house. 
movement to share a space. And it's another just to say, hey, be a part of our backyard. And there's a closeness. You know, it's a model I actually saw with a friend of mine who takes in refugees in her guest house. There's a closeness of, hey, I don't know how to do this or how do I cook something or where do I go for that, that where you can just have easy access to someone, but still have some nice boundaries, be able to close your door and have your own kitchen and make your own mess. <laughs> and it's something that's worked really well for her and for the families that she supported in that way. And there's a level of one thing I like that she told me is that there's a level of protection when you have a front house. The houses that are in the backyards, there's a level of barrier from the world and from the street. You know what I mean? That it's a little bit safer. So is the idea that you would continue to support the young person after they get their tiny house, maybe working with the homeowner to be kind of a mentor? Is that the thinking or is it really, you know, you're building the homes and at least for now, that's your primary focus? Yeah. So we recognize having a house is not the whole issue, right? And like I said, there's that connection. So we actually have three other programs that we do with young adults, whether or not they're part of building the tiny house. So like I said before, it was such a, an expensive startup, both in finding a space, finding the funding and all that stuff for the tiny houses. So we started the other programs first. And so we try to do the best we can to really build them up in all the ways as they're participating in the program so that they're fully equipped and connected as they go out and park the tiny homes. So that's supposed to be kind of the last step is going out parking, but we help them with life skills. They get to stay. We have our first tiny home builder right now. She's staying in a host home. So a host homes program, I don't know if that one's come up before, but they are around the U.S. and it's more of a, we have to explain to the kids and everybody else sometimes it's not foster home. There's no it's an extra bedroom. We understand it's a young adult. They're responsible for themselves. The host home doesn't say, hey, you got to do this or that. That's our job. <laughs> we say, hey, make sure you're staying in school and let's make sure you're getting life skills and stuff like that. They're just there to be a nurturing, safe presence and a safe home for the young adult as they're getting on their feet. And so, so yeah, so the idea is that once they're in the tiny home in the backyard, we do background check kind of have a little bit of a similar situation as what we're doing with our host homes. Ideally, put them through some training, being trauma-informed and different things like that. But really, it's supposed to be kind of their launching into independence. And, and we have an open-door policy in terms of if you don't have somewhere to go for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, you want a, somebody to have dinner with in an evening. That door is always open, that long-term connection if they want to come back here and have somewhere to go. Because I talk to people in their 30s who say, I still don't have anywhere to go for Christmas that are former foster youth. We want that. The other thing we say is we're people to call family and a place to call home. And so even if there's no biological family, we want them to feel like they have somewhere to go on the days when everybody else is gathering with their family. So that part always stays ongoing. And we do also offer, you know, if they're going through hard times, because any young adult does, you know, how many people in their thirties these days sometimes bounce back home or call mom and dad for help with some financial issue. And so what's great about the tiny homes, our ideal situation is to have a place where they can come and park for a little bit. And if they aren't able you know, if they're paying rent at a property and parking their tiny house and lose their job and go through hard times, they can move their tiny house, get back on their feet and go back out again as any young adult would. Wow. So do you have a, a property and a place where they can come stay then? For the host home or the tiny house, you mean? Kind of a, a centralized headquarters. No, we, we would like to, but it's 
pretty doggone expensive out here. (laughs) We bought a house intentionally with room for parking tiny homes. So I can personally offer a spot for them to bounce back. And then we're in the process of creating a guest unit as well for them to, if they don't have a tiny house, to help young adults to have a place to stay. So the idea is that they, it sounds like they would pay rent to the homeowner of some kind for having their tiny home in the back. Yeah. 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 Eventually, especially, I mean, you know, maybe at first, if they're getting on their feet, working out a deal, because we really want people who are interested in caring personally about a young adult who's aged out, not continuing the whole cycle of them in it just for the money. Yeah. I know you said you started your other programs already. Mm -hmm. How many young people have you been working with? You know, how big is your program? Yeah. So there's layers. I think we counted about 160 that have that we've helped in the last few years. So there's levels of involvement. So we have had life skills workshops, the life launch program that we have been doing. We partnered with the local high school social workers, and then also what's called guardian scholars at the college. So that's works with kids who are in college, who were in foster care and provided life skills workshops in partnership with them. I think we served, was it around 60 high school students, about 35 college students. And then kind of out of that, we found, you know, we were doing gift cards for showing up and lunches because we know that there's always a need for food a lot of times and toiletries. And and so we kind of recognized that need and started just providing that. And that kind of branched out into what we call family care, where we provide for basic needs, such as, like I said, toiletries, food, clothing, diapers. There's a lot of young adults who, you know, I think the number is 50% of kids who age out of foster care have a child by 21 and 70% have gone through a pregnancy. And so we have a lot of our kids who have kids and they're single parents and they're struggling. And unfortunately, sometimes they even lose their kids to the system as well because they're struggling. And so we provide diapers. We have a partnership with an organization called Baby to Baby to help us with providing kids clothes and booster seats and all those kinds of things. So they supply other nonprofits that are helping kids in need in any way. I think on their list is foster youth who have kids of their own, but theirs is helping kids zero to 12. So it's the kids of our foster kids. (laughs) And then as part of like, like I said, caring for them, I met an aged out youth who said, you know, the entire time I was in foster care, they never once celebrated my birthday. And she's probably in her thirties and I could still hear the hurt in her voice. And it really struck me. And I was like, man, if you feel like you're the kid who wasn't picked, if you're not selected, if you don't have a forever home and your birthday goes by and nobody even recognizes it, that's got to be really hard. And it is something we've seen in other kids too. And so we said, okay, not on our watch. If they want a birthday, we're giving them a birthday. And so we put together birthday boxes, which have presents and celebration kits. We have a partnership with another organization called For Goodness Cakes. And they bake cakes for kids in foster care. They train people in the community who are at home kind of semi-professional bakers to make cakes and then they deliver them to organizations to distribute. And so we do that as well. And then also over the holidays, we reached out to DCFS. If there's anybody who isn't going to get a gift at Christmas that wants one, let us know. And so we ended up doing a hundred gifts this last year, just at our local child welfare office. And then we have our host homes program. That's what we've been doing. And so For, you know, the life skills, the birthdays, the Christmas, that's a larger crowd because it's less touch points. And then 
we have on average five to 10 youth who are really in depth meeting every week, making sure that they're getting connected to the resources they need and moving forward with their own goals. And how many staff do you have at this point? Do we count unpaid staff? (laughs) Sure. Anyone who's helping you, not partners per se, but I'm just curious how many people are able to make your program run? Uh, Two. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. That's a lot for two people. It is a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. That's wonderful though. And volunteers definitely make a difference, but we could use some more. And we are trying to work out how do we manage the work? You know, do we scale back in one area? Do we try to figure out bringing on more staff? There's an opportunity in LA to have some government funding for our host homes program. And that would be huge. We would be able to hire two people. Ah, It pays for staff. So Okay. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> All right. So you have some programs that are underway and they have been underway mm-hmm. and you serve a lot of young people. And your vision is to incorporate the tiny home program on top of this. Right. Yeah. So the idea is that it would ideally be kind of a seamless experience, if I'm understanding correctly, that that they would come to you and that they would maybe go through some life skills training and and have some experiences with you learning and eventually work their way to having their own tiny home. Does that sound right? It is. Yes. The idea is ideally one person could be a part of all the programs and get their needs filled up and met and be empowered to launch out into the world. I think this program, and it's not the first time I've heard of tiny homes being built for young people aging out of foster care. And so I know others out there are doing this, but I think it's young. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great opportunity to helping other organizations. Like once you have your pilot done and you have some data and you have some experience, I think there would be a lot of organizations that would be very interested in hearing about the details and benchmarking with you Mm -hmm. about how things went. Yeah, yeah. And we're happy to share. I would, the idea is to keep it kind of small and replicate, you know, in other communities. Are you hoping to expand out of LA or do you really want to stay in the region? It is something that fits particularly well with LA just because of the extreme affordability crisis. The fact that tiny homes on wheels can park in a backyard. There's other parts of the country where a $40,000 tiny home isn't that big of an advantage. <laughs> As it is here, we start out at, like I said, half a million for affordable condo, supposedly. I would love to, but yeah, we definitely have to really get it, get a really good working model. I really just love the ownership aspect of it. I really love that the money doesn't all stay with us as an organization. It goes with the kid where they they have a little bit of stability from that. And pride. Absolutely. I think this is true for the vast majority of people. When you own something, you tend to take care of it better than if you're just borrowing it or in this case, renting it, Correct. right? And so I think that the owning the tiny home, learning everything that goes into acquiring it and maintaining it, those are going to be such great skills when they're ready to upgrade to their own single family home or what have you. Yeah. And it's an opportunity for future income for them as well. Maybe they sell it and they get that down payment on that first home. The young lady who is building her tiny house, she's like, I want six kids one day. (laughs) I was like, oh, you can't stay in your tiny house. (laughs) (laughs) But she could also put it in her backyard and rent it out to somebody else, you know, and have income. Oh, yeah. 
you know, or sell yeah. it, like I said, as a down payment for the next. It's really meant to really help them step up. And so, yeah, I think there's a unique opportunity there. And the kids who applied for it, I was excited to see that they got it. That, you know, one of the young adults, we we had a questionnaire and said, you know, do you have any questions about our program? And he wrote, is this too good to be true? I just want to know. He saw the opportunity, you know, and understood that it was a unique and really leg up for him. Right. So what do you see as opportunities for the foster care system to improve how they're preparing these young people for adulthood? And and going back to the organization that you partnered with when you went to Kyrgyzstan, mm. for example, what did you see that they were doing there that we could do here? Maybe that's a good starting point. If their young people seemed a lot more optimistic and ready for adulthood, let's talk about it. What is it that they had that we don't? I think, honestly, even as a culture in the U.S., we don't value community enough. We don't recognize the weight of importance that being connected and having a social support system has. We have this individualistic, like, put in your hard work. And, you know, some people will think that they've made it to the top of alone. But you look back and you're like, no, you had this help from here. You had these things that you take for granted. I think we take our social supports for granted. So I think helping the young adults who are in foster care find unique ways to really get involved in the community, like maybe being a part of sports. I feel like that doesn't happen much. It's because there's not money put towards that. But being a part of a team could be a way to have community beyond being in the foster home. And I think the other thing I would say is helping young people to be prepared for adulthood. The plan for the foster system was never to have kids age out. It's not, we're going to hold kids here until they get too old. Because there's still that mindset, I think opportunities get missed for developing them as young adults. I don't see enough of that happening. You know, like I said, I've I've written a parenting book or two. And so there's a lot of research in that. And when kids are teenagers, it's normal and healthy for them to take risks. But when you're in the foster system, knives are locked up and you can't get to the washing machine because there's bleach in there and somebody could get hurt. And it's extraordinary things that you wouldn't have happen in a typical home at least with a teenager. Yeah, for a two-year-old. But a 18-year-old doesn't need to have the laundry room locked up. And that's what I hear happening to kids. There's so much interest in just keep them safe till they get out, that there's not opportunities to take risks, to learn how to cook, to touch hot things, like all those things you need in healthy development. And so I think recognizing that kids are going to age out, so let's make sure we prepare them for adulthood. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. The issue of young people not being able to just experience regular life mm-hmm. <laughs> because of, like you're saying, these restrictions that are put on them. A lot of them aren't allowed to have a part-time job for different reasons or, or like you're saying, even some of these basic household things. It's so important as part of growing up to experience and to take risks and to learn as you're living Because then if you turn 18 and you haven't even done laundry with bleach, you know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're going to have pink laundry, (laughs) right? Because you've never learned how to work with bleach and or you're going to handle it incorrectly because you haven't learned how to handle it. And so it's such a gap there. Is it because the state is telling foster parents, don't let them do this? Or is it foster parents being kind of hyper worried about being liable for those types of injuries? 
Yeah, I think it's a mix. I think, you know, it's, it. unfortunately, I guess I'm thinking of some specific instances that the young adults have told us about. When you have it in mind as a business versus a way of caring and helping somebody in need, you're just about managing the risks. You know, one of the social workers in our system that I was talking to her and she was considering, you know, her next steps. And she said she didn't, wasn't sure if she wanted to stay with child welfare with their local child welfare office or government. And I said, oh, what's the reason? And she said, because everything we do is CYA. That's the top priority. Make sure we don't get sued. Make sure we don't, you know, versus the development or what the best interests of the kid. And that was a problem for her because people who get into social work and take that job, they're not in it to be some kind of legal defendant. They're, <laughs> they're in it to make a life-changing difference. And so I thought that was a really interesting insight that she shared with me. And I think it's both. And I think we have to, and just changing that mindset of we're just here to keep them safe enough until they get out. That's a way different goal than helping someone develop and become a successful young adult. And, you know, this young lady that one of the young ladies you work with, she doesn't know how to cook at all. She has no idea how to do any sort of cooking because everything was, it was honestly locked up. Even the food was locked up and she wasn't, even as she stayed into turning 18, she wasn't allowed to have any access to any kinds of things like that because her home was a little more of a business home. Right, right. I think of the... Milton Hershey School model, and it's a residential school for at-risk youth in Pennsylvania. Several years ago, they actually created a different model for young people when they're a senior. So when they're a senior, it's K through 12. When they're senior in high school, they actually move from living in what's called the student homes, Mm -hmm. where you have house parents and they have eight to 12 kids and they all live together. They move from that into more of apartment living. And they have a chance to live their final year in more of an apartment type of scenario where they have people helping them learn life skills and how to take care of an apartment. And then they transition out when they graduate, then they're more ready for adulthood. I just wonder if that couldn't be a model where you have young people who, granted, ideally they wouldn't be in foster care that long, but if they are, maybe when they're 17 they could move into like an apartment complex that is run by the foster care system. And maybe they have, we'll call it a house parent couple there on site in one of the apartments. But again, the similar type of thing where they can learn life skills, but they're still in foster care, kind of like a different way of looking at transitional living or extended care. But let's move it to 17 before they're officially aged out to give them a chance to learn these skills. Oh, I love that idea. And I know that I'm pretty certain all the kids I talk to would love it too. They're all about like that. They just want their own space. (laughs) Yeah. Well, sure. And it helps them, right? They want to start living their own lives. They're tired of foster care. They're tired of being told what to do. I mean, when I was in foster care, I was in a group home and I had a, a point system. So everything I did, every chore, every little thing I had to get points for had points taken away. That's very structured. Yeah. That's not representative of life. You need to have that freedom to make mistakes and try things and learn things. Yeah. And find that, I think, what is it called? That internal motivation, intrinsic motivation, I think is really key. Because there is a lot with the young adults, especially in some of the group home situations. Everything does is very extrinsic and kind of pushy (laughs) instead of helping them Mm -hmm. figure out and find that motivation. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time here, but I do want to give you an opportunity before we finish. If anybody wants to send you a donation, 
where do they go? Finallyfamilyhomes.org is our website, and you can just click the donate link there. Otherwise, we're also on Facebook and PayPal Giving Fund. So, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And are you in need of any materials right now? You know, (laughs) honestly, so we had an awesome situation where we got power tools donated from an organization called Operation Tiny Home, but they don't have any batteries. So we could use batteries, battery packs for our power tools. What's the brand? Milwaukee, Milwaukee Tools. Okay. So I don't know if anybody listening has (laughs) anything like that or could send them to you, but would they just get in touch with you through the website too? Yeah. About that. We have a contact page. Yep. Or Christina at finallyfamilyhomes.org. Fantastic. Well, Christina, thank you so much for participating in this podcast. I really enjoyed learning about Finally Family Homes and what you're doing there. I'm very excited about this tiny home concept and seeing more and more organizations taking it on as a way to help young people learn how to live on their own, or in your case, even own their own home, which I think is fabulous. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm grateful for your work too. I think we can all learn a lot from each other and really help provide the best care we can when we work together. Thank you very much. That is part of our goal. Try to break down these geographical barriers and collaborate with each other and learn from each other and find resources from each other. I think that's the the way that we're going to improve the system outside of the system. Absolutely. Right? I agree. <laughs> so thanks. I thank you very much. And for those who have listened to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org and click on the podcast link in the menu or go to your podcast streaming programs and find us there. And also, as mentioned, we focus on collaboration. We did just launch an online community for organizations and individuals who work with this population. So if you're interested in collaborating with others across the country and even beyond about aging out of foster care, the challenges they face and how we can help them through it, go to, again, agingoutinstitute.org and look for our community link. So thank you all very much for listening. Until next time.